Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I am really thrilled to have with me today Dr. Pam Lipset, who is quite a name in both critical care and education and surgery and someone who I've really felt to be lucky to get to learn from and now to be colleagues with. Uh, she's a professor of surgery and anesthesia and critical care medicine here at Johns Hopkins. She's also the residency program director for the surgical residency, former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and someone who is world-renowned for her work in both critical care and education. Pam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me, Jed. I'm really honored. So we are going to talk about sepsis today, uh, a topic that is both very interesting and kind of ongoing and changing. And so why don't we jump right in? And Pam, let's talk about just kind of the very basics. What is sepsis? When we hear that word, what are we talking about? Well, that's a really good question. And over the time, certainly the time of my life, that definition has been uh, reexamined, revised. And recently, I would say it's now into its uh, third rendition. Most simply put, sepsis is infection plus a dysregulated uh, host response. So it's not just enough to have infection, that would be infection, but it's infection plus this abnormal response to infection would be called sepsis. Great. So you need to have both. And is has that changed over time? Did, was, this, was it ever thought to be just the infection itself? And we've kind of clarified now that it's more involved with the host response, or have we always had kind of both pieces? Well, I think how it's been conceived is a little bit different. I think the most recent definitions really have tried to um, clarify who the high-risk individuals are, how to recognize them, and when we might apply those definitions. So I think we've always, certainly from the Roger Bone uh, initial classification, where they looked at the inflammatory response to infection, Uh, They used this inflammatory response or SIRS, systemic inflammatory response syndrome. They used that as a proxy for the identification of sepsis. And while those things clearly are often present with sepsis and septic shock, they're not enough uh, for the presence of uh, infection. Non-inflammatory or non-infectious causes, uh, burn injury, pancreatitis, are really good examples of things that are often, certainly in the immediate uh, uh, foundational period, they're not infectious, they're simply inflammatory. So this most recent group that redefined how we think about sepsis tried to look at it in a way to um, easily quantify, identify, and early recognition, because I think that's one of the most important things of this disease is early recognition. 
Great. And we'll definitely get into that. So when we, we talked about sepsis, while we're on definitions, you mentioned septic shock. Does that have a different definition than sepsis? Yes, it does. And I think it, you can think of it as a more serious, more mortal uh, form of uh, sepsis. And that means two important things need to be present. One is there needs to be instability of the blood pressure uh, so that the mean arterial blood pressure is less than 65 and requires uh, support from both the fluid and vasoactive uh, agents. And there needs to be sign of uh, malperfusion of the organs uh, demonstrated by an elevated lactate level. If we have those things, then the mortality dramatically increases. And so it is the most serious form of sepsis, septic shock. Okay. And there used to be severe sepsis, not yeah. so much anymore, is that right? No, that definition has gone out with this what's called sepsis 3 definition. So certainly was part of sepsis 2 definitions. And um, the idea was that it was something in between sepsis and septic shock. Um, but uh, that is out of the current definitions. Okay, and the thought was really all sepsis is severe, so it didn't make sense to say severe sepsis as separate from just sepsis. Yes, correct. Okay, so to have sepsis, you have to have the infection and the um, host res- dysregulated host response, and what kind of things tell us that we have a dysregulated host response? Well, I think really what has added to the literature, especially outside of the ICU, is a really simple way to identify these patients, and that's called Q, as in the letter Q, SOFA. And the SOFA score is just a generalized way to categorize abnormalities in um, organ injury. But QSOFA is really simplified or qualified. And that is to look at um, abnormalities in mental status, so confusion or delirium so that you're not perfect. You're something less than a Glasgow of uh, 15, uh, say 14 or less. Whether you have uh, tachypnea, uh, and whether you have an abnormal uh, blood pressure. Okay, so those three things, and, and do you have to have all three of them, or what qualifies you as, as no, a positive? Two, two or more, and I think what's really important is recognizing two or more outside of the ICU environment has clearly been associated with a 10% mortality. 10%. That's really significant. Yeah. So if you have two or more of those outside the ICU, and we say outside the ICU because in the ICU, are we doing something different? Yes, we're doing something uh, more complex, and that would be the actual SOFA score uh, or other similar scores of end organ injury. In fact, QSOFA does not predict as well in the ICU as it does outside the ICU. I should also add that QSOFA does not definitely say that you have sepsis. It simply says you better look at this patient uh, population a little bit more closely because it doesn't say they even have an infection. It simply says something is abnormal in their, in their vital signs and one potential explanation is infection. And if it's infection, it predicts a severity that we need to pay attention to. Great. So this isn't a diagnosis of sepsis. It's a screen for risk for sepsis. Absolutely correct. And I think that is an incredibly important point. Is there a way to diagnose sepsis? I mean, if, if once, let's say someone screens positive, they have a positive QSOFA, um, what would be the next step to figure out, do they actually have sepsis? Well, I think you have to have a suspicion for infection. Uh, and that is uh, really the foundation of even thinking about this. 
Now, that doesn't say where it is. It doesn't say what microbes might uh, might not be present. So that really is the difficult thing because certainly in many of the patient populations that you and I care for, uh, tissue injury by itself can look like infection, but in fact it's inflammation. Mm-hmm. So uh, you really have to have some detailed understanding of what probabilistic reasoning would give you um, uh, an infectious diagnosis, and from that, what the potential pathogens might be. Okay. So obviously, drawing blood cultures, if you're suspicious, would be one way to try to find an infection. As you said, just kind of being aware of other potential sources of infection, someone with an open wound that looks inflamed may be more likely than someone who has no obvious source. Yeah, I would actually step back and, you know, I'm an old school kind of old gal. And uh, I would say the first is you need to think about the history. Mm -hmm. And in the history, there are certain, um, in our population, certain procedures that would make them more or less likely. For example, emergency surgery, uh, surgery on the GI tract, whether or not they did or didn't have prophylactic antibiotics, uh, whether they had an invasive uh, trauma uh, uh, injury. Uh, So historical aspects, um, as well as patient demographics, are important. Obviously, the next thing is the physical examination. Are there any localizing signs that would suggest? And as part of that physical exam, one of the critical things would be, do they have um, risk factors related to invasive devices uh, or procedures that they have had? And are there signs that that might be the root of the problem? Uh, So I think the physical exam uh, is uh, quite important. We know, for example, intubated patients, each day they are intubated, adds risk and probability of infection. The same can be sent of central lines, Foley catheters. So each of these kinds of things should be considered as well as the operative procedure. Uh, So I think once you have some idea of what uh, risk is or probability of infection, You think about where the infection might be. Uh, That helps you think about what the pathogens are. Uh, You need to think about whether the um, presentation is severe or not. So is this sepsis or is it septic shock? I Mm -hmm. think that influences the urgency of intervention. And then I think you also, and this is part history, um, is is the patient a special risk population? immunosuppressed, chemotherapy, a transplant patient, uh, asplenic patient, these patients don't tolerate um, missing the uh, chance to uh, early intervene. Right. Okay, great. So those are all things we want to keep in mind as part of this diagnosis of sepsis. If we back up a sec, so we talked about the QSOFA, what that replaced was a SIRS criteria. Um, Do we definitively feel like were QSOFA is the way to go over SIRS, or is that still is there still some controversy over that? Well, I think people haven't fully adapted to it, but uh, there are several publications verifying, at least outside of the ICU, uh, the simple usefulness. And I think one of the things the Surviving Sepsis Campaign has uh, told us is that early recognition of this uh, problem is really critical. So uh, I must say I have fully endorsed it conceptually. There's nothing wrong with SIRS. There's nothing wrong with thinking about SIRS. But using it as a stratification for treatment or especially for entry into clinical trials 
is really problematic because it doesn't tell you anything about the infectious process per se. Um, it does tell you about severity of response, but it doesn't tell you anything about the infection. Okay, great. So we've moved to QSOFA, at least outside the ICU, um, and it's a quick way to screen for people who may be at risk for or who are at risk, so we need to figure out if they have sepsis. So you sometimes hear the term gram-negative sepsis or gram-positive sepsis. Is that a useful term? I mean, it's referring, of course, to what the organism might be. I think it, I think it's uh, useful from a um, therapeutic strategy. I think it's useful in um, probably at the cellular level when thinking about uh, what the responses are. Toll-like receptors certainly are different in how they respond to gram-positive and gram-negative infections. And I think if you were to know early on that it's one or the other, how you um, use your antimicrobial therapy is. So this is really where you need to have a grid in your head about this is the site, and at this site, these are the most probable types of uh, at least bacterial or fungal pathogens that are present, because that's when you're thinking about empiric therapy and how to match the probable pathogens with uh, the uh, antimicrobials. Great. And so let's move then on to treatment. So somebody screens positive on the Q-SOFA. They, uh, we kind of go down the algorithm you laid out of doing our history and physical exam and thinking about their risk factors. We now think, okay, they, they are septic. So what are we going to do to treat them? Well, I think um, aside from believing that you have the diagnosis, I think the two most important things uh, would be early administration of uh, a fluid and antimicrobials. Um, you should get diag- a diagnostic evaluation, um, and blood cultures would be part of that. Lactate would be part of that. Uh, and so once those things are done, or in conjunction with all of these things, I think uh, early fluid administration and early antimicrobials uh, covering the expected spectrum of, of bacteria would be appropriate. Great. And so I think we want to get our cultures ideally before the antibiotics, but we don't want to delay the antibiotics to get the cultures if we're struggling. Yeah, I think one of the things we clearly have, the, the two most important things um, that have influenced outcome are early resuscitation with the appropriate amount of fluids uh, and uh, early antimicrobials. And it's not as easy as it sounds. Uh, one really needs to pay attention to the antimicrobials. Uh, we have a seven-step process here at Hopkins, which can be confusing and easily can have uh, errors in the process. So I have a little clock in my head that goes off, and I want to know that those antibiotics are in the patient within one hour. And that's one hour from... When, when you first identify the patient as having sepsis. Okay, great. Now, when we talk about fluid, and you mentioned the appropriate amount of fluid, it's certainly an area of some controversy. Do we definitively know what the appropriate amount of fluid is to give up front? I don't think anything in critical care medicine is ever definitive. Yeah. Um, certainly the type of fluid has been argued for probably, certainly as long as I've been alive. Uh, I think uh, the... Surviving sepsis campaign says crystalloids at 30 cc's per kilo over the first several hours. I think what you want to do is give a generous fluid bolus, and generous, depending on the blood pressure, would be probably 20 cc's per kilo. 
uh, certainly if you're hypotensive, that would be uh, appropriate. And then you want to monitor the response. I think you would uh, do that as you would in any uh, person. But if you're showing signs of end organ injury, as you would in septic shock, uh, I think 30 cc's is probably uh, fairly accurate. I also think there's a general trend for minimizing aggressive resuscitation uh, beyond that initial uh, phase where you have uh, adequately resuscitated the person. So I think you need to have some measures of whether you believe it's been an adequate resuscitation. I think bedside echocardiography, straight leg raising, dynamic signs of uh, uh, fluid responsiveness, uh, and a serial lactate evaluation are sort of standards that are now in exist, and many of them cost nothing. Right. Certainly the straight leg raise couldn't be cheaper. Um, lactate is an interesting one. So as you mentioned earlier, it's part of the diagnosis of septic shock. Um, is it a uh, – do you th- – see the lactate clearance as uh, a sign that we're adequately treating sepsis or the lack of clearance as a sign that we aren't? Uh, It's certainly a predictor of outcome. Uh, I think failure to clear lactate at 24 hours is a serious uh, association with uh, mortality. Uh, So whether it's um, an association, a predictor, or uh, unresponsiveness, I think it could be any of those and often is all of them. Right. So we're following lactates. We certainly feel good if they're clearing their lactate. Um, so in addition to giving fluid, at what point would you start a vasopressor? Um, I, I think you need to consider it probably after you give the 30 cc's per kilo. I think in some patient populations of uh, um, perhaps uh, uh, signs of uh, heart failure, you might be a little bit more moderate. But I, I think a priori, I would um, generally give that much fluid. And I think surely uh, soon after that, I would add a vasoactive agent because you're really, what you're trying to do is establish adequate perfusion. Not a target blood pressure per se, though we do now have at least one major publication which helps guide us and tells us that we should be a mean of greater than 65. When I say greater than 65, I mean greater than 65 uh, because that paper actually was closer to 70 in the, in the uh, experimental group. There's no clear evidence, at least in the overall population, that we should be 85 or 80, for example. Now, having said that, that one paper does caution us in patients who are hypertensive at baseline The mortality is no different in these two groups, but what was different was the need for renal replacement therapy. This is a reasonable uh, hypothesis which we need to continue to study because uh, acute kidney injury in association with critical care has an enormous cost in hospital costs, but it also has a high association with mortality. Uh, So I think we need to know whether that population should have a different therapy or, or not and we don't know that right now. That study's, while important and pointing us to something important, you might say, well, why don't we just elevate the blood pressure in, in that patient group? When the blood pressure was elevated, they did have more adverse events. So I think there is reason to go ahead and study this. When I mean adverse event, events, uh, dysrhythmias, cardiac dysrhythmias were associated with the higher blood pressure. Mm. 
And yeah, that's interesting. And our our presser of choice, of course, for sepsis is going to be norepinephrine, correct? Which does have some beta agonism and may therefore predispose to more arrhythmias. It might, yes. Yeah. Um, okay. Although in the study that looked at norepinephrine versus dopamine, dopamine was the bad guy, and norepinephrine was not the bad guy. Definitely, which is a major reason we use norepinephrine over dopamine. Um, so norepinephrine, our go-to presser for sepsis. Do you? Uh, Add vasopressin ever? If so, at what point? Good question. Uh, I think the data are quite equivocal on the use of vasopressin. And uh, again, it's um, very clouded by uh, the patient population that I care for on a routine basis. Many of them have had GI surgery. Some of them are liver transplant patients. And really, their splanchnic vasoperfusion uh, is very dependent on um, not having vasopressin on board. On the other hand, in the cardiac population, which you care uh, for a lot, I think there's pretty good data that the vasoplegia associated not so much with infection but with cardiopulmonary bypass is particularly responsive to vasopressin. Mm -hmm. So I think the outcome is really not different uh, when vasopressin is used. It does allow you to use a lower dose of norepinephrine. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that has any particular value, to tell you the truth. So I'm a bit of a nihilist with respect to vasopressin. Um, I think sometimes you get desperate until you're able to get source control and in that setting, I'm okay with it, but uh, I don't use it liberally. Okay. So mostly norepinephrine, sometimes you're adding vasopressin. Some people are more or less um, likely to pull the trigger early and add vasopressin. Um, and then what about steroids? Uh, do well, can you, I, can yep. I just back up and Absolutely. say sometimes you also need to add a little epi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and epi, I would say the use of epi in that setting is typically low-dose typically for cardiac contractility, maybe for pulmonary vasodilation, depending on uh, the patient's cardiac physiology. So um, I would not typically use that uh, as an agent to manage blood pressure, Mm -hmm. but I would use it uh, for cardiac contractility. Okay. And so we're talking about doses of maybe 0.05? Yeah, that would be typically uh, 0.03 to 0.05 is really where I would be thinking about. And what would make you, uh, on a given patient who's on relatively high doses of norepinephrine, say, you know, I think we need to add some low-dose epi? Uh, I think any signs of actually uh, an ineffective cardiac output, and whether that's determined invasively or non-invasively, I think you need to pay attention to those things, uh, and that would be when I would add uh, uh, low-dose epi. And so since you mentioned the potential for invasive measurement, at what point would you put a Swan-Gans catheter or a PA catheter into a septic patient? Well, I think when there's a question of uh, whether you understand the the physiology or not, it's pretty clear there have no studies, been no studies uh, that uh, change the outcome, except in perhaps a negative way, by using a PA catheter. But I think those studies, frankly, have all been fundamentally designed poorly. 
this is a monitoring de- device. This is not a management device. And in the setting where it's been used to target some sort of oxygen delivery, it's not been proven to be beneficial. So, um, plus we know from very uh, uh, long ago studies that even in university settings, the understanding and interpretation of that physiology is flawed, highly flawed, at both the nursing and the physician level. Mm. So, you know, could we have used it better? You know, when you go back to look at how this got FDA approval in the first place, um, Swan and Gantz identified that there was a 25% error, clinical error, in predicting what the cardiac output would be, low or high. I still think that's the same. I think we haven't learned clinically how to predict predict this without using some sort of additional information, whether it's direct or indirect. Mm -hmm. So I'm old school. I like to see it. And most importantly, I like the residents and fellows to understand the physiology a little bit better. So uh, do I use it? Yes, I do use it. Not very routinely. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's really best use is if you can use it in conjunction with bedside echo so that they really learn to integrate this in a way that um, uh, they may not understand before they come to the unit. Yeah, and so very useful with a patient who may be septic and have some cardiogenic component, right, where you're trying to figure out is there poor perfusion more cardiogenic or more distributive or both, and it helps to have some extra information. Yeah, and I think this is really going to depend on, um, and certainly the outcome probably depends on, is this baseline cardiac dysfunction that you did or didn't know about, uh, whether it's contractility and or valvular disease, or is this um, the sort of cardiogenic association with sepsis uh, which uh, Joe Perillo spent his entire career studying and has very good um, data to show, at least by echocardiography, that the dilatory phase associated with sepsis is a very poor predictor of outcome mm. and is associated with circulating um, proteins that uh, are cardiac depressants. Okay, so we know that sepsis itself can cause that. Yes. Now, when we, what about um, mixed venous gases? People, uh, I often have med students and residents will ask, you know, oh, well, I was taught that uh, your, your mixed venous um, blood gas will be high and low in sepsis. So what do, we, what do we teach people? What is the answer to that? Well, I think it can be high and low in <laughs> sepsis. So um, I think certainly if it's normal or high, you, um, there's nothing you can do at this point in time to intervene in a therapeutic way. If it's low, what that says is that there's an imbalance between delivery and utilization, and you have to look at the equation and decide simply is it a fever that's uncontrolled that you could control and decrease utilization, or is there a delivery problem? So all you know from that is that there's an imbalance. There's no clear outcome data to suggest that actually fixing that has a difference in outcome, mm. but it also hasn't been well studied in that exact way. So there's, it's been studied in the way of um, can you target a certain delivery, but not in an extraction or a mixed venous sort of way. I think an elevated mixed venous is really interesting 
because that's really bio bioenergetic failure. Mm-hmm. And probably in the future, there will be therapies targeted at that idea. Um, so maybe in the future, uh, there will be something, but at the current time, maybe at the current time, there isn't anything in that regard. Okay. So by bioenergetic failure, you mean that uh, essentially the tissues need oxygen, but can't access it. Or they can't utilize it. So this is probably more, this is really at the cellular level and probably at the mitochondrial level. Uh, So within the cytoplasm and the mitochondria, uh, oxygen may be available, but it can't be properly Mm -hmm. utilized. Very interesting. And so there's some aspect of the septic process that is causing that dysregulation. Presumably, yes. And it goes back to the original definition. Right. Absolutely interesting. All right. And then what about steroids? Uh, Should we be using steroids in sepsis? And if so, when? Highly controversial. Um, Highly controversial, filled with, uh, I would say, uh, opinions which are uh, on both sides. There's a long history here now going back mm, probably about 40 years. There are probably 12 major substantial trials in the area. And the trials, the first nine trials back in the 70s and 80s, I would say um, clearly concluded that steroids in the extraordinary doses used at that time were ineffective, if not dangerous, and were abandoned. Of course, a non-study then came out and said they are the next thing to apple pie and sliced bread and were dramatically beneficial in uh, non-responders. I think we've learned that that study um, probably doesn't tell the whole story because Charlie Sprung's study um, finds the opposite finding. It is so no benefit from uh, steroids in the second study. Very similar studies with one major exception, uh, two, two major exceptions. One is the patient population. Um, severity of illness was definitely greater in the first study, a non-study. Um, and the use of flutocortisone is different uh, in the two studies. It's hard for me to imagine that that made a major difference in any way, particularly probably wasn't even absorbed is my guess mm. since it is only an oral medication. Uh, but some have talked about that being uh, a difference. It's also important to know that these two studies um, compared to the early studies used a very different dose of steroids. It's still what I would call a um, pharmacologic dose uh, and a non or maybe the max physiologic dose and we can't produce more than 300 a day, 300 of uh, hydrocortisone. Mm-hmm. We can't. And in most cases, really 200. And those data came from Rob Utelsman uh, probably 30 years ago when he was a surgery resident working at the NIH. Mm. So we know the body does not produce these ridiculous amounts in any circumstance, mm-hmm. even you know, running after a tiger kind of thing. Right. Uh, so the early dosing was way overdosing. Uh, now these uh, you know fifty Q six uh, kind of two hundred total uh, total a day of hydrocortisone is probably in the max response dose. But even that, even in the advocates, 
How long do you give it? Do you take it away once the blood pressure is uh, normalized? Do you taper it? These things have not been standardized. Mm -hmm. My own feeling about steroids is very negative. Mm -hmm. Now, you have to couch that by the patient population that I routinely care for. They're surgical patients. They have surgical infections, usually source control. And if, if you can get source control and... Um, they have not gone too far along the course, they should respond to that and they should get better quickly. I think we saw in, uh, you know, one of the uh, early uh, uh, immune modulator trials that surgery patients respond differently. If you have a surgical infection, get source control, you're going to get better quickly and whether or not you use a biologic I think sepsis and steroids are probably like that in the surgery population. If, however, you use it in these long-term patients, first of all, their HPA axis is very disordered by that original administration, and I don't think you ever get out of that same, uh, now the uh, axis is disordered and they're going to need steroids, and I think that hurts them. Yeah, so those are patients on long-term steroids or who have another reason to be adrenally suppressed. Correct. Okay. Or if you give them steroids for this reason uh, and then they get infected again because their diseases are uh, many, uh, 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 my feeling is they don't typically recover from those problems. Okay. The two trials you were mentioning, the uh, sprung and the non-trials, were the adrenal and approaches trials. One used an infusion of hydrocortisone, and the other did what we do here when we do it, which is more of a 50Q6 bolus. Do you think that matters? Uh, Well, they have different results, so one possibility is that it matters. I don't think it does because if you look at the pharmacodynamics of hydrocortisone, um, I do think it needs to be at least Q6 if you're going to use it because it's not going to be out, uh, last outside that window. Mm-hmm. But whether a continuous high level is necessary, um, I don't think that's what you see physiologically. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure that that accounts for the differences in outcomes. Okay. Um, and then, you know, Paul Merrick has put forward this um, cocktail uh, that includes not only steroids but also vitamin C and thiamine. Um, any, any thoughts on that? Is this something you think will, will play a role in the future as more data comes in, or are you skeptical? Well, I'm from Salem, Massachusetts, so you might think of magic as being something that I would believe in, but <laughs> I'm a scientist, and um, uh, I think that trial results, first of all, it's not a trial. It was a retrospective review mm-hmm. of a very uh, aggressive, heroic application of an untested principle. The results, you know, eight and a half mortality versus 41 about percent mortality are striking, and they're so striking that they're frankly almost unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Having said that, the science is very interesting, Mm. extremely interesting, and uh, I would say even encouraging. So, you know, vitamin C... It does a lot of things. Uh, A lot of things when you look at its actual mechanism of action. Is it working via reactive oxygen species, immune modulation, uh, vasoconstriction and dilation because of catechol uh, formation? 
it's like one of these bio uh, formulations, except it's a inherent uh, uh, vitamin. Right. Um, but having said that, we have no idea what the dose is supposed to be. And a high dose has consequences. And the consequences are renal. Mm-hmm. I just said before that renal insufficiency, acute kidney injury, is a real killer. Its association with mortality is high, the morbidity is high, uh, and the cost is extraordinary. Um, that's why thiamine's added to the uh, to the cocktail is to try to prevent that uh, side effect. So um, I'm encouraged. I really wish it would have been uh, used as part of an actual randomized trial. Uh, I think we need more dose-finding information. It's, it's too premature. It's, it's a great idea. It's a very reasonable hypothesis. Uh, the science, uh, biologic science behind it is extremely strong. And it fits with, uh, I don't know, there's maybe 100 patients in trials of 20, 25 patients uh, looking at, some looking at dose finding, some uh, uh, mostly dose finding. You know, this is a, at best, phase two study. Um, What needs to be done is a phase Mm -hmm. two study, not a phase three or worse yet, phase four. Uh, I definitely think that uh, this should not be applied globally. Uh, without further study. I think there is a potential for harm and unintended consequence with early adoption here. Okay, great. So interesting stuff, but more data is needed. Um, What about, sometimes we hear about antibiotics being given either what we most commonly do here, which is as, you know, intermittent bolusing versus infusions. Any, anything, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's, a, again, a really interesting idea which brings forward uh, uh, pharmacodynamic principles. Of course, that only depends on if you apply it to the proper mechanism of action. So we're really talking uh, beta-lactam mm-hmm. agents. Uh, having said that, there's very limited information to suggesting that this is efficacious. The best information is in Piperacillin tazobactam. I think actually it looks like that is a better way to give this drug. That's not a surprise. If you look at piperacillin by itself or penicillins as a group, not cephalosporins, but penicillins, time or frequency above uh, the MIC is really what you're looking for. So conceptually, it makes a lot of sense for that agent uh, or the agent and the combination with tazobactam, which really doesn't add anything to the pharmacodynamics per se, uh, I think the data suggests that is beneficial. The carbipenem story is a little bit more confusing, mm. a little less robust. Um, I don't know that I could absolutely endorse that as an all the time. I think there are selected desperate situations where you got nothing else and you got to try it, particularly if you have a high MIC pathogen. Uh, you might try it under those circumstances, but it's not something I would routinely recommend because it means another line. Right. And so that's a source of infection, another source of infection in our patients. So uh, I, I think conceptually it's interesting. Piptazo may be the way to go. Uh, Carbipenem is not, not so clear. Okay, great. 
you mentioned lines. Uh, you know, certainly not that long ago, even when I was uh, in medical school and residency, we were taught uh, septic patients must have a central line. Um, we've moved away from that some. Do you have a, a kind of a way you decide in your head whether a, a patient of yours who is septic needs a central line or not? I think you need to have adequate access, whether that means a central line or not. Um, uh, I, I don't think a priori. Uh, they need to have good access that you can administer fluids, appropriate other antibiotics. And you need to think forward about whether tissue edema is going to become problematic and lose uh, peripheral as- access. So I would say the vast majority of our patients are going to have a central line uh, more for uh, access to um, medications, perhaps for central venous saturation monitoring, mm-hmm. um, but not so much for rapid fluid administration. It obviously doesn't help with that aspect. Right. But I think vasoactive drugs obviously uh, uh, do need to be administered typically better by a central access. Yeah, and I think that your point about the edema is a good one because some people, especially in anesthesia, will say, well, we give you know phenylephrine and now even peripheral dose levofed through peripheral IVs all the time in the OR, uh, but we don't typically have the same level of edema developed that you do in a, in a septic patient in the ICU over days and days. Yes. All right. Let's talk about fever. Um, we often see uh, infected patients uh, who are febrile. They often are febrile. Um, do you treat their fevers to bring them down? Again, a controversial point for which there have been a couple of studies. Of course, they have opposite results. Um, I think the question is really um, why does fever exist and is it beneficial or harmful? Fever exists as a response, uh, a heat shock uh, protein response. That is a beneficial response to infection. It's a way to control infection and allow uh, the normal process of cell death in, in uh, cells that are going to die as a result of the process. So I think it's important, first of all, if you don't have a fever, that's really a bad predictive sign. Whether treating it puts you into that category or not, I think is, is unclear. So what, why might you treat it? Well, um, I think you would treat it because it's an added utilization of energy and stress that patients probably don't need. Uh, And I think certainly in somebody with a head injury or a marginal cardiac situation, uh, I think those would be ones that I would tend to treat. Uh, Or if you can't control the utilization and um, you have a uh, very low mixed venous, I think that would be uh, a reason to aggressively treat uh, uh, a fever. Uh, certainly in neurologic injury unassociated with infection, it's important to treat a mm-hmm. fever. Outcome, neurologic outcome is, is affected yeah. uh, in that setting. Okay. And so let's say apart from the, um, the specifics that you mentioned, so someone with a particularly low mixed venous or someone with a head injury associated with their sepsis, um, you wouldn't treat fever just to treat it. So typically, for example, writing for Tylenol to, to just for fever. Uh, I would not. I, I think this is uh, another study that could be done and tell us whether it's the right thing or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is one study which suggests that it might be beneficial. Okay. Uh, but there's an opposite study that suggests it's harmful. So uh, I, I think making a blanket statement about it beyond symptomatic relief of distress uh, probably is unwarranted. 
Okay. And then is there a level of fever at which you would treat regardless? Yes. Uh, um, I think uh, watching for a very rapid rise, and I think if you're getting close to 40 degrees, uh, I, I think you need to aggressively intervene in that uh, that setting. That is going to tissue injury by itself if you're at that level, particularly neurologic injury. Uh, though I think there are other organs that are also injured uh, uh, at that kind of level. Okay, great. Certainly so, higher than that for sure. Yeah. So keeping keep an eye out for that that kind of peak of forty or above. When you think about, you've been treating sepsis for a long time. When you think about um, mistakes you see sometimes in people who are treating sepsis, you know what are common mistakes that people out there who are maybe starting to treat this for the first time should keep in mind to try to avoid. Uh, I would say the most important thing is early recognition, aggressive early fluid resuscitation, and adequate, appropriate empiric antibiotics. And I think I've seen lots of mistakes in all of those areas. Uh, I always say that um, sepsis is never suddenly occurring. It is only suddenly recognized. Mm. The subtle signs are always there. Um, it, it just doesn't suddenly occur. Uh, it's not part of the pathophysiology. Even in the very rampant um, types of surgical infection, uh, clostridial gangrene, for example, that's rapidly advancing, um, but not in the sense of uh, the time course that would, uh, you still would see it in, in time. So I think early recognition, uh, appropriate antimicrobials, uh, and fluid really are the big mistakes. Okay. And so people who are um, not getting these things done early uh, probably are not thinking of sepsis uh, until too late. Yes. So having a high index of suspicion is key. I also think uh, early warning systems really, mm. you know, we're humans. We're not machines. We have machines. The hospitals have monitors. Certainly all the ICUs have monitors. But I think when you look at the ward, this is our big opportunity is uh, finding those patients. And, and some states have, have shown in early recognition for sepsis on the ward, and getting early treatment does make a difference in, in survival. I would say the other mistake is um, misidentifying a source and thinking you have appropriate uh, antimicrobial coverage when it is a source control problem. Mm. Source control, at least in surgical patients, uh, is usually central to treating appropriate surgical infections. Yes, absolutely. And so uh, if you are, for example, treating what you think is a pneumonia, but there's an abscess, you're going to be in trouble. Well, and I think the early BAL studies showed that 25% of the time, uh, people thought it was pneumonia, but it was actually an intra-abdominal process. And right. uh, I don't think we can ever forget that part of the story. And that's part of what I consider my initial risk assessment, and that depends on where the operation was. Right. And so, obviously, you know, you're going to have to – source control is a huge part of this. Thinking about how you're going to identify that source, as you said, is going to depend on the history. If the patient has had an intra-abdominal surgery, then looking for an intra-abdominal abscess with a CT or in the operating room is going to be key. 
And I think we'll increasingly see bedside ultrasonography. Mm. Uh, as the equipment gets better, I think we can see more and more things. And, you know, Europe has used these things uh, to a better advantage uh, than we have for many years. So uh, I, I also would consider that as, as part of uh, the diagnostic process. It's quick and fast. Yeah. And then when we think about, uh, so you're going to give the initial fluid uh, that you mentioned, pressors may come into play depending on the severity and the response. At some point, you're going to have to start making decisions on whether to continue giving fluid or, as you said, whether to start de-resuscitating. What methods do you recommend to make those decisions? Well, I think this is, again, the, um, the use of your hemodynamic uh, assessments, whether they're invasive or non-invasive, the use of um, uh, uh, other variables such as uh, lactate normalization or rate of clearance, uh, urine output if that's available, although that's questionable about whether that's valuable. Um, uh, and I think the other uh, bedside assessments of, mm-hmm. uh, of perfusion, straight leg raising, et cetera. Great. Uh, what, when you think about kind of the next stage of our approach to sepsis treatment, are there, is there anything exciting on the horizon, anything you think we'll see changing or that we should keep our eyes out for going forward? Well, I think the most imminent things are the v- vitamin C thiamine data, mm-hmm. um, and I think uh, that will emerge you know, I still have this idea in my head that sometime, probably not in my lifetime, maybe in yours, uh, we know that people respond differently, right? There are hyper-responders. I still think there will be a DNA chip sometime mm-hmm. in the future that's going to say you are a polymorph of E, for example, mm-hmm. and you are going to be a hyper-responder. So maybe a biologic or uh, an anti-inflammatory uh, is appropriate for you, but it would be terrible for me. Mm-hmm. So we know there are differences in pharmacology based on our DNA. Uh, pharmacogenomics, proteomics, these are all areas. I, I sometimes feel I know something and then I know nothing. And we know really nothing about how to treat these problems. And I wish I could live another 150 years to see what we ultimately know. Yeah. Uh, so individualized sepsis treatment. Uh, and, and that would be exciting, uh, certainly, as we see it in other areas of medicine as well. Um, well, it will be fun to see. I certainly hope it does happen in your lifetime. And um, it will be fun to see what we do see in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Um, Pam, anything you think we haven't covered that we should before we end? No, I think we've covered a lot. Absolutely. And thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show to talk about sepsis. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me. All right. That was fantastic. I can't think of anyone I would rather have on to talk about sepsis than Dr. Lipset. Hopefully, you found it useful as well. Go to the website, acrac.com, where you can let us know what you thought. Leave comments. Did we miss something? Do you disagree with something? You can let us know, and everyone can learn from your comments that you leave there. You can, of course... On the website, access all of the episodes that we've done, as well as join the mailing list and get a hold of me at acrac at acrac.com.
If you are a fan of the show and you haven't already, or even if you have but it's been a while, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you are interested in supporting the making of the show, please go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, we really appreciate it. And you also have the option, if you prefer, of going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. That's paypal.me slash A-C-C-R-A-C where you can leave a donation anytime you want in any amount that you would like. And, of course, we are very appreciative for anything that you do. Huge thank you, as always, to everyone who is already a patron or has already made a donation, and to Brian Park for the excellent outlines he does. That is going to be it for today for the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Pam Lipset. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.